Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the federal government is spending $42 billion to expand rural broadband internet access. The Ohio Department of Development has been tasked with allocating our state's $793 million share. We'll speak with Director Lydia Mahalik. Also this morning, it's another big win for local economic development, but what does it really mean to be number one on the inaugural list of Site Selection Magazine's Top Counties in America? To your health this morning, a postscript to Myasthenia Gravis Awareness Month. And we'll get details on the latest programming during the month of July from the Hancock County OSU Extension. Jennifer Little will be here to tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, July 10th, 2023. First and foremost, I hope that you finished off all of your fireworks over the weekend uh, because can't shoot them off again now until Labor Day. So hopefully you got that all out of your system uh, from uh, last week over the uh, 4th of July and this past weekend was the last legal weekend until Labor Day now to uh, shoot off fireworks in the uh, state of Ohio. So hopefully you got those uh, all uh, all done. I, uh, my wife and I did a little bit of traveling, uh, over the uh, past week. Um, just a quick getaway. Um, you know, nothing, uh, nothing real big, no big, huge, uh, travel, uh, vacation excursion, fairly close to home, but, uh, you know, did a little bit of travel and a little good, good to get away for a couple of days and, uh, all of that around the holiday. And it was a busy one for the nation's roads and airports over the holiday week this is kind of interesting travel is back uh post pandemic in full force matter of fact uh the uh travel numbers are higher even than they were pre-pandemic so the concern about how soon would americans get back to traveling after the pandemic uh you can put those fears to rest because we are traveling even more now than we did Uh, Before the pandemic, and it says here, according to a a new survey from the website (laughs) CheapCaribbean.com, Scorpios, uh, I guess, spend the most on vacation, uh, averaging almost $3,000 per trip. Um, Tauruses, on the other hand, tend to spend the least on vacation at an average of $2,240. So, Scorpios, the biggest spenders on vacation. Tauruses, the most tight-fisted spenders on vacation. The poll also found that Capricorns are most eager to get out of the house. Geminis are the ones who want to go and see new places all the time. Uh, Fire signs are guilty of packing last minute. And water signs are most likely to book an unplanned trip. So... Way your zodiac signs affect your travel plans, if you've ever wondered. Boy, haven't you wondered? Yeah, I wonder what sign, what astrological sign spends the most on vacation. Now you know. Of all of the respondents in this poll, 59% say they are making it a goal to do something fun every week this summer. And uh, it also goes on to say 23%, speaking of uh, astrological signs and superstitions and all of that, 23% say that they would avoid travel on Friday the 13th. So it's a good thing we don't have a Friday the 13th during the summer season, so you don't have to worry about that. Next Friday the 13th we have 
uh, won't be until October, which is kind of interesting, but a whole different story. But there you go. Uh, when you are on vacation, this is kind of interesting. When you are on vacation, do you watch the same TV shows as you do when you are at home? Now, I know what you're thinking. Most of us would say we go on vacation to disconnect. We try not to watch too much TV, but there are certainly times when you're away uh, that you turn on the tube. And do you tend to gravitate to the same shows uh, as you do when you are at home, or do you try new things in that respect as well? A a survey on TikTok reveals the uh, program's Uh, It says TikTokers are revealing the programs they only seem to watch when they are in hotel rooms uh, and uh, Airbnbs and and so on. Places where you generally have limited access to cable TV or satellite TV or however you get your streaming services, whatever. You generally have a less robust selection of channels when you are on vacation, whatever your accommodations are happen to be uh, one user shared they uh, one user uh, shared that they uh, only watch impractical jokers when uh, they're on vacation this woman said she the only time she's ever watched that show is when she's on vacation uh, and that kind of got this conversation started on uh, online some of the uh, replies uh, in terms of the shows that people watch only when they're on vacation diners drive-ins and dives Uh, Wipeout, Pawn Stars, Um, although others commented that they uh, generally uh, have the same viewing habits as when they were at home. One person went so far as to say, I bring my Roku device and I hook it up to the TV where I'm staying, and so I can get everything that I would normally get. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting for me. I generally try to disconnect as uh, much as possible. Hopefully, you're out doing fun and exciting things instead of just sitting around and watching the tube. So, uh, and I would have to say I am probably among the camp that when I do watch TV on vacation, I tend to watch things that I don't watch at home because, uh, I will watch channels that I don't get at home. And I think the uh, last time that, uh, not this time, I think the last time I went on vacation, uh, last time I went on a big vacation, uh, the place we were staying it was a uh, was a, a condo on the beach, but uh, one rainy day where we just kind of had a lazy day and vegged out. Um, I was watching HBO. I don't have HBO at home, so I you know a couple of things on HBO that I wanted to catch and never had the opportunity. So I seized the opportunity to catch up on that because I don't get it at home. So anyway, that's just me. Uh, a couple of other uh, interesting uh, items. Uh, obviously, when you are on vacation, you eat out more. And I think most of us in the summertime eat out more uh, than at least we do. We always have in our family. This is the time of the year when we eat out more. And if you are itching to dine out, you are not alone. Uh, according to a new survey, 47% of Americans are tired of cooking the same old things at home, same old dishes at home. Survey of 2,000 adults found that 58% try to reimagine their dishes with different seasonings. 38% try to incorporate more fruits and vegetables into their diet this time of year. 53% consider themselves to be adventurous eaters and have tried a variety of cuisines. Um, 47% 
just tired of the same old, same old. So what drives people away from trying new foods? Why is it we get into this culinary rut? Lack of opportunity, unavailability, and fear of not liking new foods are the uh, top uh, excuses that we give uh, for them. Again, just kind of uh, interesting. Again, when you go on vacation, if you go someplace new, you try new restaurants, new places to eat, do you generally gravitate toward the same types of things that you order when you're at home, or do you try new things? Because you're on vacation, and that's what it's all about. At least if you are a... Uh, at least if you are a Gemini. <laughs> is that in what, that the uh, sign is trying something? Uh, let's see. If you flew over the weekend or over the uh, past week, the holiday, um, at the uh, at the airports, TSA, uh, very, very busy. Think of the uh, numbers that I saw. Uh, the highest uh, number of Passengers screened since the start of the pandemic. Again, they keep, you know, hitting that again, hitting new highs. They did over the uh, 4th of July uh, holiday. Did you catch this in uh, Miami? The Miami International Airport, three TSA agents have been accused of stealing from passengers at a security checkpoint. Uh, Elizabeth Fuster, Liberius Williams, and Jose Gonzalez were arrested last Thursday and charged with organized organized schemes to defraud. Uh, surveillance footage reportedly shows the agents conspiring to distract passengers and then steal money from their luggage. Uh, one such recording appears to show the agents taking six hundred dollars from one passenger's wallet. Two of the th- uh, two of the three reportedly confessed and implicated the third TSA spokesperson says any employee who fails to meet our fundamental ethical uh, standards will be held accountable. So maybe they need to screen the screeners a little bit better. (laughs) You would think that uh, you could trust the uh, people who are screening uh, the uh, passengers, but apparently they were screening uh, for something else. And... um, this, I thought, was just kind of interesting, sort of uh, random to talk about the first things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. This falls into that category. I happened to see it on the Newswire, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Researchers have found that just like humans, the octopus transitions between sleep stages. You've got a light sleep and you've got a, a real deep sleep. We In humans, we call it REM sleep, and uh, apparently octopi have a similar state of deep sleep. Uh, their arms and eyes twitch, uh, breathing rate quickens, their skin flashes with vibrant colors, which I guess humans don't really do, but an octopus will. Um, all of these observations of octopuses, octopi, when they are sleeping has led scientists to conclude that uh, the octopus may even dream. Researchers from Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan, along with colleagues from the University of Washington in this country, meticulously examined the brain activity and skin patterning in octopuses, octopi, uh, during an active period of sleep, roughly once an hour, 
the octopus uh, entered an active sleep phase for around a minute, and during that stage, the brain activity very closely resembled their brain activity while awake, just like it does in REM sleep in human beings. And so there you go. I thought, wow, that is amazing. I have always wondered, does an octopus dream? That was <laughs> one of the burning questions in the minds of man has now been answered. <laughs> yes, an octopus will dream. There you go. Now you know. <laughs> the most important things to know this morning. Uh, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Plenty of sunshine expected today with a high in the mid-80s. Mostly clear tonight, a low in the mid-60s. The Finley Fire Department responded to Cooper Tire on Friday night for a fire on the roof. Fire Chief Josh Eberly says the fire was in an air handling unit or dust collectors on the roof and in the ductwork connecting them to some production lines. We're able to get inside and get up on the roof and open up some access panels. It was just really difficult to access those because once we got up on the roof, there was a lot of obstacles to get over there, and we had to stretch hose lines up there and stuff like that. The chief said they got the call about the fire at 7.08 p.m., and it was determined to be under control at 8.55 p.m. Get more of our conversation with the chief about the fire and see video from the scene and this story on our website. The Finley Police Department is seeking the public's help on identifying a person who stole a wallet and then used the stolen credit cards to make purchases around town. Police say it's believed that the person you can see in the surveillance pictures in the story on our website stole the wallet from a locker at Planet Fitness on Tiffin Avenue. Anyone with information about the suspect is urged to contact police or Crime Stoppers. Tipsters may be eligible for a reward. And again, you can see the surveillance pictures of that suspect in the story on our website. The state budget recently signed by the governor creates the Department of Education and Workforce, which will have a new cabinet-level director appointed by the governor. It puts the Ohio Department of Education under the governor's office and limits some powers of the state board of education. Critics call it a power grab. Here's what the governor had to say about these upcoming changes. It became clear to me that we could better serve children out of one department and one member of the cabinet who every day got up and that's all she was thinking about. The governor says a transition team is already in place to make that transfer happen smoothly. I'm Yolanda Harris. The city of Finley is reminding residents that as part of city projects such as resurfacing or utility work, it's the city contractor's responsibility to seed areas that were disturbed during construction. Homeowners are asked to water newly seeded areas so the new grass can germinate and grow. The city provided more details in a Facebook post and on their website, and we have a link to both in this story on our website. I'm Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. So now our cover story this morning, it was announced uh, just in the uh, past couple of weeks, right before the holidays, matter of fact, $42 billion from the federal bipartisan infrastructure package has been earmarked to expand rural broadband internet access in this country. And in Ohio, the Department of Development has been tasked with allocating the state's $793 million share of that. And uh, joining us this morning is the director of the Ohio Department of Development, former Finley Mayor Lydia Mahalik. Director Mahalik, thanks very much for uh, joining us. I got to get that Director Mahalik. I was practicing that. I don't say Mayor Mahalik, say Director Mahalik. I feel like it's once mayor, always a mayor. (laughs) 
<laughs> we appreciate uh, you taking the uh, taking the time. So, seven hundred ninety three million dollars uh, coming to the state of Ohio for uh, rural uh, broadband internet yeah. uh, access. Not a um, bad chunk of change. That is that is a lot of money. Yeah. And a lot has to happen in order for that money to be released and, and invested and spent and, and, sure. and so on being put to use. Sure. Um, my understanding is that it all begins with uh, a, a plan, yep. an outline that has to be in uh, that has to be done by the end of the year, right by December. Yeah. So, uh, so a fairly tight timeline here. Right. So first of all, the the money came from the bead program. Uh, which BEAD stands for, because, you know, every good government program has to have an acronym. Yeah. So BEAD stands for Broadband Equity Access and Deployment. And so we have been working with our partners in the federal government now for about a year or so. They had initially awarded us about $5 million uh, last year to conduct stakeholder outreach. And that outreach was really the the first step towards receiving this funding. Mm-hmm. So we've been working with them hand in hand. And the, that outreach that we received through Broadband Ohio helped us create this five-year action plan. And really over the last several years, uh, last three years, Governor DeWine, Lieutenant Governor Husted have had this vision of making sure that every Ohioan is connected. Uh, and that connection is so vitally important because it helps us participate in not only the modern economy, but the modern healthcare system, the modern education system. Uh, high-speed internet access is no longer just a luxury, right? Yeah. And so we have this five-year action plan, uh, which helps outline our this vision with goals and strategies. And we submitted that actually uh, to our friends uh, at the Department of Commerce and NTIA, uh, I think at the end of June. And so now that we have the plan, uh, we're going to be working uh, with, uh, with the Department of Commerce and NTIA uh, to, to figure out how we will deploy fully this almost $800 million. As a bit of a sidebar, there's also, I understand, like $50 million in the state budget that has been allocated for similar uh, work that needs to be done to roll out uh, or expand rural broadband yeah. uh, as well. So yeah. in all, more yeah. than $800 billion. A- absolutely. And, and you know, over the last uh, couple of years through the previous budget, uh, we started a program uh, called the Ohio Residential Broadband Expansion Grant Program. Mm-hmm. And that program uh, was where the state invested money with, uh, you know, internet service providers. So like a Spectrum and AT&T and mm-hmm. other local smaller uh, providers uh, to really help uh, expand internet uh, to areas where it did not exist. Yeah. And so it was a little under $250 million in the previous budget. Uh, so you can uh, you can bet that this eight hundred million yeah. is really going to help us get the job done. Yeah. So how how will it uh, be used then? Uh, again, first step in the yep. in the process is to have this plan. Yep. Uh, by the uh, end of the year, so yep. working on that. Yep. And then what happens next? How will this be uh, allocated so that you get to the goal yep. of making universal broadband? Uh, available. So similar fashion uh, to what we did with uh, with the Ohio Residential Broadband Grant Program. Uh, look, the, the internet service providers know how this stuff works, uh, so we're going to continue to partner with them. Uh, so it, it's just going to be a great 
uh, shot in the arm uh, for us to be able uh, to get that done. Uh, but the difference here is that uh, the way the bead program works is it's not just unserved locations uh, that will be uh, addressed. We're also going to do uh, underserved locations because we have areas in Ohio, uh, particularly here in Northwest Ohio, where you know we've got people who who say that they have uh, you know high speed internet, but it's not the speeds uh, that you know you and I uh, maybe get uh, here uh, mm-hmm. in in Findlay, uh, and the 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 service is not necessarily all that reliable. So we want to help those providers kind of beef up uh, the the system. Uh, so that we can have high-speed, reliable internet. Well, that was actually uh, going to be one of my questions, too. Uh, there are certainly areas, even in this county, where uh, high-speed internet is just not yet available, Correct. period. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, wide swaths of, like, southeastern Ohio, where that's the case, and, yeah. and, and so on, so... Uh, that I would imagine has to be priority number one. Yep. But then, how much of that uh, goes to in, uh, increasing choice uh, to even those who have it now, but maybe only have it available from one provider? So, great question. I think you know, first and foremost, we want to make sure uh, that we hit those unserved um, parts of the state because uh, you you know we want to uh, make sure that people have the opportunity uh, to access it. Uh, second of all, uh, we want to hit those areas that are uh, underserved. Uh, and th- there is certain definitions, and if you are uh, – I've learned a lot uh, about broadband uh, before uh, – now before, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when I got to this job, it was like, I don't know what, you know, 25 <laughs> megabits uh, per second right. uh, download speed and 3 megabits uh, per second upload speed is. Uh, but, you know, eventually we want to get to 100 megabits uh, per second download and and 20 megabits uh, per second upload. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are at Broadband Ohio and have been uh, for a while now technology neutral. So, you know, fiber is the best, uh, but sometimes fiber can be really expensive. And, you know, it's difficult when you go down to uh, southeast Ohio to get uh, fiber through some of that terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes we would say right. uh, during our flood uh, dis- uh, flood project discussions here, you know, we're topographically challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not topographically challenged uh, in Southeast Ohio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, what? At least not in that way. Yes, that's but, right. Not yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, choice will certainly become a conversation. Uh, but, you know, having access first and foremost uh, is is priority number one. And what is the timeline? Because none of this, it's kind of a, a bit of a sidebar on this. People yeah. in uh, in our local community, and I know they were just in our neighborhood uh, this past week, uh, from Metronet, who oh, are uh, in, yeah. installing fiber, and they've been doing that around the city. Yeah. This is not, uh, that is not part of this. No. Uh, you know, that no. is completely separate no. uh, from this. It's kind of, you know, happening at the same time. Yeah. But how, what's the time frame for this? Because obviously it's not going to happen overnight. Right. So these dollars uh, actually we're looking uh, to deploy here uh, towards uh, the beginning of next year. Uh, and uh, they're, they're part of our budget. Uh, so we're going to be deploying over the next two years. Uh, you know, we have to work uh, with the Internet service providers. They're going to have to get plans in place. They'll be submitting those plans to us. We're going to have to work through the construction season, all of those things. So, uh, you know, look, our, our plan, uh, it's a five-year plan. 
So look to get this complete as soon as possible. We're not that far away uh, from getting every corner of this state covered uh, with high-speed internet. I think it's uh, a great testament to the work that we've been able to do, the priority that the administration has placed uh, on this particular uh, issue, and then the work that we've been able to do with our partners. So I want to get you out of here on this because, again, we're talking about $793 million (laughs) that's coming from the federal government yeah. for this project. And as many people know, big dollars from the federal government, especially this you know, big of a number, generally does not come without strings attached. Yeah. Are there strings attached? Are there any concerns that you have about this money uh, coming from the federal government uh, for this purpose you know this is uh you know fairly cut and dry uh i think the the strings that are attached to this uh have everything to do uh with uh making sure that we're hitting those unserved and underserved locations making sure we get the the speeds correct Uh, but this is uh, very consistent with the approach that we've been taking the last uh several years uh we're 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 well known uh, for our broadband uh program and our strategy here in ohio we're one of the leading states in the country i have no concerns moving forward uh, again, Ohio Department of Development Director Lydia Mahalik with us uh, this morning talking about the uh, earmarked money for rural broadband internet access and the expansion of it uh, in the state and, and nationwide, but particularly in the uh, state of Ohio. Director Mahalik, thanks very much once again for joining us. Good we to see you. It. Thanks for having me. So coming back from uh, vacation here uh, this week, sort of catching up on some of the news uh, that happened over the past uh, 10 days or so. One of those things was the uh, big announcement right after the holiday of another big win for local economic development. Uh, Site Selection Magazine has uh, placed Hancock County number one on their inaugural list of top counties in America. And uh, Economic Development Director uh, Dan Schaefer is with us this morning and uh so what is this um what does this really mean to be number one on this particular list um as opposed to the top micropolitan areas and and this does not replace that right this is uh, a new designation in addition to that well good morning chris it's good to be with you again uh so yeah in part of being an honor number one uh, it's really a validation of the economic development's mission statement of driving growth and prosperity in Hancock County. And indeed, it's the mission of the uh, Finley-Hancock County Alliance as well. Uh, It is the inaugural, as they call it, um, issue of um, top counties in the country. So I was quite surprised when in May I was uh, contacted by one of the editors to uh, let us know that we were at the top per capita. So what does it mean? Uh, It means earned PR, which is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a spotlight on the community, which is also a good thing. And again, it's a validation of the work we do. So is that work substantially different, or is it in any way different uh, when you're talking about Hancock County economic development versus uh, economic development in the city of Finley? No, virtually it's the same. Uh, We are Finley-Hancock County economic development, although most people understand that most of our businesses and manufacturers and distribution is here in the city, although we have a couple that are outside in the townships, uh, Harshside Food Solutions being one of those. Right. So, But our, our mission is the same regardless of whether we're working in the city of Finley or in the county. And our number one daily uh, prime directive, as I call it, is retention of existing companies. It's a lot easier to retain a company than to go find a brand new one uh, going forward. So um, people think attracting new companies is 
is what's cool and what's sexy, but, but uh, really earning your bacon every day is, is, is really working with your existing companies and understanding their needs. And of course, uh, the new stuff is the stuff that grabs the headlines. So sometimes we forget about the uh, critical work of, like you said, retaining what we already have, which may not, like you said, be as, as sexy or as headline-grabbing stuff, but is uh, of utmost importance. I thought it was interesting, the emphasis on that side of things. Well, you mentioned... Uh, Retention, and you also mentioned top micropolitan for the last nine years for the city of Philly mm-hmm. municipality. Uh, it really points to that as well. So um, it's something that we we work on every day. Uh, retention of existing companies. You know, if we don't know, we can't help, and that's our that's our mantra when we talk to plant managers and to CEOs. If we don't know, we can, we can't help. If you look at 2022 as an example, 100 percent, 100 percent of all of our expansion projects and investment capital investment came from our legacy companies. 100% of all new job creation last year came from legacy companies. Uh, so were all of these, I mean, again, when we talk about uh, top micropolitan uh, communities, that uh, includes Hancock County uh, sort of automatically. It's not just Finley. It's uh, Hancock County automatically. So, uh, and I would imagine for other micropolitan communities, it's much the same. So are these two lists... Uh, very similar, not just for us at the top, but you know, on down the list. Or are they looking at different things? I mean, well, Conway Publishing, which is the parent company of Site Selection Magazine, did a deep dive on the data and realized, I think, after seventy years of, of publishing, that there was was data they hadn't uh, sifted through or filtered, uh, and, and wanted to create a new category. So um, I don't want to pretend to be in the heads of the editors of the magazine, but right. uh, we just happened to come out on top, which, again, as I pointed out earlier, was was a complete surprise. But you, you come back to Hancock County as a whole, it's a good segue into our work uh, with the county, uh, the villages, the townships, uh, county engineer, uh, regional planning, uh, especially on the infrastructure side of things. Uh, and so it's really called stakeholder engagement, what has been referred to in the past as the Finley formula, really bringing keep, keep people to the table, key experts to the table, engaging them in a conversation and a challenge on a project uh, to come up with a solution. And that's really been the simple... Uh, example of how we've worked over the last 10 years to um, drive growth and prosperity, as I pointed out, in Finley and Hancock County. And that, you know, working with is one thing to uh, work with uh, city leaders. Um, that's a uh, relatively small set of uh, individuals and entities that, that you're working with. Here, again, when you're talking about countywide, and again, this holds true for the top micropolitan designation as well. I think we've talked about it in before. Uh, it involves working with more than just city leaders. You've got the county commissioners. You've got townships. You've got a lot of different entities that, uh, that come into play that you have to work with here. Well, it's not just, not just local. It's also our, our state uh, representatives, uh, Representative, uh, Senator McCauley, for example, and State Representative Cross. Uh, and that really working with Columbus on uh, Jobs Ohio, for example, uh, in terms of incentivizing projects if they need incentivized, uh, although there wasn't much of that last year. Uh, so, yeah, it's really a coordination of all those uh, energies, a coordination of all of those personalities. And uh, I emphasize personalities because you have to corral them into a conversation, um, build trust <laughs> at the table. And I think our office has done a, a fairly good job of doing that over the last 10 years. Expanding on that point, it's one of the uh, things uh, that I know didn't, that wasn't a, a big part of the magazine's piece on uh, Hancock County, but you point out that working across multiple 
administrations because, again, we've had this designation of top micropolitan for almost a decade now. This is the first for the top county designation. But over the years, there's been quite a bit of turnover in terms of those the, the, the leadership of those entities that we're talking about. Well, it goes back to relationships, Chris, um, and maintaining those relationships uh, over the course of those administrations, whether they be county commissioners, whether they be township trustees, uh, or the mayor, uh, or city council who turn over uh, on a fairly often basis in terms of elections or retirement or what have you. Uh, maintaining those relationships uh, requires an effort. It requires intention. Uh, and doing that uh, day in and day out is what I think has made us successful. There's also been turnover within the Office of Economic Development uh, as well. <laughs> so, which, uh, again, same philosophy. So, uh, it's an interesting point. It's not anything I looked for uh, a year ago. Uh, Tony Aridi, who started this position uh, well over 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, built a foundation uh, along with a good board of directors and advisors. Um, and then Tim Miley jumped on board a year after that. Uh, and I was fortunate to come along at a time when um, uh, economic development was looking for some assistance in small business, which is the world I came out of. So mm-hmm. I jumped into small business resources for the first six months and uh, quickly became engaged and absorbed in everything, all things economic development. So uh, when Tim Miley uh, left the position uh, last fall, uh, it seemed like a, a fairly good transition into this position for me. And uh, I've been doing it for the last 10 years anyway. Uh- how actively, I'm curious, how actively are you cognizant of these designations when you go about your your business? I mean, uh, you know, this is, like you said, a pretty big feather in our cap. This is Site Selection Magazine is a uh, very well-respected uh, publication that a lot of people – uh, individuals who are responsible for making these decisions of uh, expansion and growth of, uh, of businesses into one area versus another will look at. So being at the top of that list is very, uh, I mean, there's there's some meat there. It's not just a, you know something nice a trophy to put on the wall or you know something to hang on the wall. Um, how cognizant are you of that going about your uh, business? We want to make sure that we get you know, number one again this year. Well, that kind of that's a simple answer. We don't take it for granted. Uh, we don't count on being number one. It's, it, we were lucky to be number one two years in a row, and then three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Mm-hmm. You don't count on it. We don't keep it top of mind. We don't look at it daily. Uh, we start to look at the numbers and the data sometime, usually in the middle fall, November, de- you know, late December. We we submit the data that we have. Yeah. And uh, we don't know where the ships are going to fall until uh, we either get a call or we don't get a call from site selection uh, sometime in January, early February. So uh, we don't count on it. We don't take it for granted. Um, we don't count on number 10, uh, although that would be a wonderful thing to have. Uh, but we don't, we don't let it drive our daily business. I uh, do want to ask you about this because it's one of the other uh, topics that we're talking about in the uh, program this morning, the uh, rural broadband uh, Internet uh, expansion. Uh, and Ohio getting $800 million in federal funding uh, to expand rural broadband, uh, broadband internet access. How critical is that for from an economic development point of view, especially as we're talking about uh, growth and expansion in the county, sure. um, in areas that uh, maybe that, that kind of access is, uh, is limited? How critical is that? Sure. Well, by all means, I'm no expert on broadband, uh, except that I use it at the office and at home. But we do have partners uh, and uh, some of our advisors who are here connected with uh, broadband on uh, all things IT and Internet of Things, uh, it is critical, uh, especially as you get out into the county, into the rural areas, uh, especially as businesses are looking to expand into the county, into the townships outside of the city of Finley, 
then that becomes it is critical because you need to have access to, to broadband. You need to have access to um, all things in terms of data. Data drives everything, and if you don't have access to data, you make bad decisions. Again, uh, Dan Schaefer is uh, Economic Development Director for uh, the Finley-Hancock uh, County Economic Development Office. Hancock County being uh, announced as uh, number one in the top counties ranking from uh, Site Selection Magazine uh, in the past week to go along with the uh, uh, top micropolitan uh, designation. Pretty exciting stuff and definitely something you're going to be leveraging moving forward, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, anytime you have that feather in your cap, as you pointed out, uh, use that as a PR, earned PR, unearned PR uh, let other businesses in town, recruiters, can use that message as well. Dan, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Well, to your health this morning, a postscript to Myasthenia Gravis Awareness Month in June. Now, this is a chronic autoantibody condition of the nervous system that affects muscle strength and makes nearly every everyday activity challenging for those with MG, as it is called for short. Meredith Connor is a patient advocacy specialist and is actually living with this. Um, she is with us this morning to share her story, along with a leading expert in this field, Dr. Nicholas Silvestri. And Dr. Silvestri, I actually want to start with you. Explain what myasthenia gravis is, uh, what some of the symptoms are, some of the ways that it impacts a patient's quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. So myasthenia, as you mentioned, is an autoimmune disease. So it's a disease where the body, for reasons we don't quite understand, the immune system is attacking a part of the body. And in the case of myasthenia, it's the muscle. Uh, and so as a result, the symptoms of myasthenia gravis are weakness. Uh, and that weakness can affect any part of the body or any muscle of the body. But common symptoms include double vision, droopy eyelids, problems with swallowing, with talking, with chewing, as well as weakness of uh, any muscle of the neck, arms, or legs. And as you can imagine, uh, when people have any or all of these symptoms, their quality of life is significantly and negatively impacted. Yeah, uh, not hard to see uh, how this can impact someone's life. Is this a progressive uh, disease, and it is, is it uh, potentially fatal? Um, not really t today. I mean, you know, prior to, to treatments, when the okay. disease was first described uh, hundreds of years ago, it was fatal. But thankfully, we have many effective therapies for this disease. Uh, and if properly diagnosed and if treatment is instituted appropriately, uh, people can, can live uh, very, very healthy lives, uh, great lives with the disease on therapy. So that is the key that we want to emphasize uh, on this. And Meredith, I want to bring you into the conversation. Talk a little bit about uh, your journey to getting a diagnosis, to getting this diagnosis, and what it has been like living with myasthenia gravis. Sure. Well, it was it was quite a journey to get to um, an accurate diagnosis. I was diagnosed in 2005 at the young age of 13 years old, which isn't pretty. This, not very typical hmm. um, in MG patients, but um, I was misdiagnosed. And during those two years of misdiagnosis, I, I had all the symptoms that Dr. Silvestri had mentioned. Um, it's what we call textbook case myasthenia, as one uh, neurologist yeah. told me. But yeah. Uh, yeah, but today I'm doing relatively well with you know a solid treatment plan. And uh, again, Dr. Silvestri, this is why it's important. Uh, Meredith was saying that uh, she spent a number of, uh, of years prior to getting an accurate diagnosis. That's really the point here. 
uh, is building awareness and, and understanding uh, about this disease. Yeah, that's right. We want people to be diagnosed quickly uh, so they can be treated appropriately and then, you know, therefore have a better quality of life. But, you know, it's important to also know that about 20% of people living with myasthenia, uh, the currently available therapies are not adequate. So we're also trying to shed light on that fact or shine light on that fact so that we continue to develop uh, and innovate therapies for a more personalized approach in treating the disease. Now, Meredith mentioned that uh, she was uh, pretty young when she ultimately got the uh, diagnosis. Is that one of the things that made it uh, difficult to be to, for her to be diagnosed properly? Is because uh, it, it, she was just so young, or is this quite frequently misdiagnosed? Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, you know, it, it can be misdiagnosed in people uh, 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 really any age, but the typical age of onset for myasthenia tends to be in the 20s or 30s. Uh, that is more common for women than men. But there is a second peak of, uh, of occurrence in the 60s and 70s, and mm-hmm. men tend to be a little bit more affected than women in that regard. So I think, you know, uh, very likely Meredith's age played a role in that because it's not as common in children as it is in uh, young and older adults. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the therapies that that are uh, available and obviously as you emphasized we want to make sure that we you know continue to to research and and find better treatments and and more effective treatments for those uh who are not helped by what is available now but what is available now what is the uh the treatment for this yeah, we have a number of therapies available. Predominantly, the, the therapies work to uh, to really uh, control the immune system, to suppress the immune system in a way so that it cannot attack the muscles. Mm. Um, so that's the vast majority of therapies. We have many therapies that are uh, uh, pills, that are oral uh, medications, and we have some infusion therapies as well that can, can treat the disease. And Meredith, uh, what would you say, based on your experience, uh, to those who uh, have been diagnosed, maybe recently diagnosed, or not really sure what the future holds, and talk about the importance of, of happy, having those conversations uh, with their caregivers uh, and with uh, their families about the challenges that this presents. Sure. Well, it's so incredibly important to have that open dialogue, but I just encourage those living with the diagnosis to educate themselves about this disease. It can be confusing and complex, but knowledge is power. And um, so I, and I also encourage people to um, build a strong support system, whether it's a care team, caregivers, whomever it may be, the ones that you trust and lean on. And then, of course, um, there's so many more resources out there than there was 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. tapping into those resources to empower yourself to be your own advocate. Uh, and where can we get more information on all of this? Sure. So you can go to um, imaginemymg.com. That's one website. Um, I'm also the Assistant Vice President of uh, Patient Engagement at the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America, the national organization. And you can go to our website at myasthenia.org. Meredith O'Connor and Dr. Nicholas Silvestri this morning talking about myasthenia gravis to your health this morning. Thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Dateline, Atlanta, Georgia, where a would-be criminal uh, who tried to rob a nail salon uh, was thwarted by the uh, people that he tried to victimize uh, when the people in the nail salon basically ignored him. (laughs) 
I love this. This is a great way to thwart a robbery. They just basically ignored the suspect as he threatened to rob an Atlanta nail salon. Security footage from Nail First in Atlanta shows a man entering the salon holding an unseen object under a black bag. Uh, The would-be robber yells, where's the money? Give me your money. (laughs) But salon employees just ignore him. As a matter of fact, one man... Uh, instead instead of responding to the robber, uh, answered the phone. There's an incoming phone call, and he just answers and went about his business. A group of women sitting there in the nail salon also do not move. One woman actually decided to get up and leave. <laughs> After a few moments of no one responding to his demands, the suspect basically shrugged and gave up and left himself. the worst robbery ever um atlanta police remind uh people that uh, generally it is best to comply with a robber's demands but in this case <laughs> uh, as of the uh, report that we saw in the uh, newswire the latest report the suspect is still at large he's still in trouble if uh, if the police catch up with him <laughs> But the robbery thwarted when people just, that's when you know that you should reconsider a life of crime. I mean, when you are not intimidating enough for anyone to even respond to your presence at the business you are trying to rob, probably that is a good sign that it is time to find another line of work. Uh, elsewhere in the uh, broken news, a TikTok influencer or would-be tiktok influencer in canada has been arrested for faking crimes for views uh anthony gagney uh has i guess achieved some modicum of fame for his past antics that have included placing a cardboard head in a window so neighbors would think a person was spying on them and driving around in a van marked free candy Uh, He has also tried to uh, get garbage collectors to take a barrel with nuclear waste symbols on them. Um, One of his other stunts. Well, police in Gatineau, Canada, not sure what province uh, that is. Those who are more familiar with uh, Canada can maybe tell me. But uh, police executed a search warrant at uh, Mr. Gagne's home and found three cell phones, fake blood, a gas mask, and a ski mask. He is being accused of public mischief for faking crimes for views. Apparently you can't do that. It is time, according to the police chief, uh, the uh, Gastineau Police Force, it is time for people to understand that actions or words expressed on social media are not without consequences. Words you can't fake crimes. As I think the first time that we have, at least in recent memory, in the uh, broken news, had somebody arrested for not committing a crime. That's a little unusual. It generally happened. So I thought that was kind of weird. Um, this is a uh, follow-up uh, to a story that you might have uh, heard. What I think it was uh, last month. Yeah, late last month, 
Um, it turns out to be rather a sad story, but, and, and generally we, we don't laugh when people lose their lives. There's nothing funny about people dying, but at the same time, this is incredibly ironic. Apparently a man who was found deceased inside of a freezer in Northeast Minnesota ended up there of his own volition because he was hiding from police. Uh, witnesses say Brandon Lee Bushman was last seen fleeing from the upstairs area of a home in Babbitt, Minnesota, due to a possible police presence near the residence. Police say Mr. Bushman had a warrant for his arrest. Uh, late last month, his body was found in a locked freezer in the basement of the home that he was either staying at or hiding out in. There were no signs of trauma or injury. Officials now say that Mr. Bushman tried to hide in the freezer and then only too late discovered that he couldn't open it back up from the out uh, from the inside. <laughs> that's, that's really sad, but I guess moral of the story is don't try to run from police or uh, don't do stuff that would get you a warrant for your arrest. Had that not happened, whole thing could have been avoided. It's really sad, actually. Uh, let's see here. Now, this is a bad day. This, no matter how bad your Monday is, if this hasn't happened to you, then on balance, your day has not been all that bad. 34-year-old man in Philadelphia is in the hospital after crashing his dirt bike into a bus this past Friday. Uh, and that was just the start. His evening was about to get even worse. Uh, local news reports uh, say that while medics were treating the man, another vehicle stopped near the scene. Someone got out and stole his just-crashed dirt bike. <laughs> so not only does he end up in the hospital for the accident, but somebody stole his dirt bike. Um, by the way, uh, and that's not even, it doesn't end there. Apparently, police are investigating the incident. And uh, he faces charges <laughs> because uh, dirt bikes are illegal on the streets of Philadelphia. He's going to be cited for that as well. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, they are still searching for the uh, thief of the uh, dirt bike who apparently took off with it right in front of several witnesses. He crashes his dirt bike, ends up in the hospital, gets his dirt bike stolen, and he's going to be cited for illegally riding a dirt bike in the streets of Philadelphia. So that's a very bad day right there. That is a bad day. <laughs> you, you know that you're having a bad day <clears throat> right there. And finally, in the broken news this morning, our dumb criminal of the day from the state of Florida, because where else? Would it be, this is from Nassau County, Florida, where highway troopers conducting a traffic stop on Thursday for an illegal window tint discovered that the reason why the <laughs> windows were so tinted was because uh, they were concealing a mobile meth lab. <laughs> While inspecting the tinting for a possible uh, violation of the state's tint window tint law, Troopers noticed the occupants of the car, one Janelle McKenzie Clark and Matthew David Leninoff, uh, were behaving strangely. A search of the car turned up liquid and crystal methamphetamine and materials needed to make both. 
Uh, both uh, Ms. Clark and Mr. Leninoff were taken to the Nassau County Jail and charged with trafficking, possession, and manufacturing and or production of methamphetamine in addition to uh, introducing contraband in the state of Florida. <laughs> Ms. Clark, the owner, registered uh, owner of the vehicle, was also slapped with a citation for illegal window tint. <laughs> Just for good measure, they went ahead and cited her for having an illegal window tint. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that is your broken news report this morning. An update of the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When you're behind the wheel, it's okay to rock out to your music. But it's not okay to interact with your phone screen and electronic devices while driving. In most cases, anything more than a single touch or swipe is against the law. That means no texting, no typing, no scrolling, no shopping, no browsing. If an officer sees a violation, they can pull you over. So remember, Ohio, phones down. It's the law. Today's daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Who are the biggest social media sinners? According to a new survey of over 3,000 Americans, 72% of respondents from the Empire State of New York say they bicker with others online. They admit, (coughs) excuse me, that they bicker with others online 65% have posted something they shouldn't have while inebriated. (laughs) So those uh, results mean that New Yorkers are the biggest social media sinners. Uh, Washington State came in second place uh, with 46.3% admitting to bad behavior online. Rounding out the top five, Illinois, Alaska, and California. Alaska. That's kind of interesting. Uh. So, (laughs) New York, Washington State, Illinois, Alaska, and California. Um, Maybe it's because they're so bored up there in in Alaska. They don't have much else to do, I guess. So, they... (laughs) Uh, In the survey, bad behavior online includes catfishing, posting revealing photos, arguing with others, sending sexual content, and posting while drunk. Those were the... Uh, factors that they considered. Interestingly, uh, 18.9% of all respondents to this survey say that they have argued with a celebrity on social media. And 20% of Gen Zers admit that they have lied on their social media platforms in order to impress people. So some of the bad behaviors that we engage in online. How many of those are you guilty of? July is a busy month for the folks, the Hancock County OSU Extension, and Jennifer Little is here with details on the latest uh, programming, the latest events, things going on through the month. Tell us what's happening. Jennifer, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. After the holiday and uh, all of that, as we kind of get back into, this is busy season for you. Yes, yes. We've had a lot of inquiries with people who are, you know, got that gardening thing going sure. on and yep. um, are interested in getting some canning and preserving. And so um, actually tomorrow night we have our 
second annual food preservation palooza. It's kind of an <laughs> open house event that we have um, at the Ag Service Center in our big conference room. And it's uh, people can come and have their canner lids. If you're do pressure canning, you need to have that gauge. If you're using a dial gauge, you need to have that checked for accuracy about mm-hmm. every year to make sure that you're canning at an appropriate pressure and temperature to make mm-hmm. sure that those foods are shelf-stable after you're done. It's interesting. You talk about canning. This is uh, that something that for many years was considered uh, something of a lost art. It was something that not a lot of people did. I know, you know, grandparents did this and, you know, their parents before that would do that. I mean, generations ago. And then it was something you didn't hear all that much about and it seems to be making a big comeback yeah, these it, days. I it hear does. more people talking I about it. I definitely canning. feel uh, with, you know, some of the food shortages and things that happened during the right. pandemic. Sure. And then people were home more, so and they the, were gardening. Right. And the cost. <laughs> and the cost, yes. And yeah. then you talk about the inflation and the cost of food is going up so much that more people are taking an interest in doing things themselves and gardening. And, you know, the master gardeners have noticed an increase in trends, people interested yeah. in getting into gardening for the sure. first time. I have two adult married children, and, and it's interesting. They really are more interested in buying local foods and also gardening themselves. And mm-hmm. so even among the younger population, I feel yeah. like there's a growing interest in DIY, do it yeah. yourself. <laughs> but because this kind of maybe skipped a generation or two for many families, uh, some of these uh, individuals who are saying, hey, let's do canning, really have no point of reference uh, for it. So, th- right. I mean, this is something you don't want to get wrong. Right, right, right. Because when you're talking about, you know, keeping stuff at room temperature for long you know, periods of time, you exactly. want to have a shelf life there. So you've got to make sure that you're canning things appropriately to kill any residential bacteria and make mm-hmm. sure that the jars are sealed so nothing creeps in there while it's sitting yeah. on your shelf. <laughs> and and even for those who have done this for generations, uh, maybe over the years, some of the things that have been passed down uh, about how this is done may not necessarily always be the most accurate uh, right, information. Right. And in an extension, we do kind of, kind of that one of our goals is to make sure that we're providing accurate evidence-based information yeah. and there is a national organization. It's actually out of the University of Georgia, their extension. They do the National Food Preservation Organization, mm. and they do a lot of research on that. We use a lot of um, – we refer people to a lot of their materials, and that's one thing that people hope – we hope um, tomorrow night, Tuesday night from 4.30 to 6.30 when they stop by. Um, we have lots of recipes, resources, educational displays. We'll be pointing people to the direction of some resources that they can use. That, um, And we're also going to be having some fun things, too. We're going to be doing – um, we're doing a, a, a swap, a little bit of a swap meet. So people that have maybe extra things, they've inherited extra canning jars or things that they don't need. Mm-hmm. They're welcome to bring those and drop them off. So we have some maybe newer canners, people that need some maybe um, equipment, extra jars, they can pick them up. So we're trying to, to um, you know, share a little of the, yeah. uh, share a little resources too. So we've, we found some extra stuff that we even have that we're trying to get rid of that we've had. There you, know, you go. So. There you go. Um, I I bring all of this up, and and the reason you know kind of talk about this a, a little bit uh, is I, I want to ask what is the most uh, the biggest mistake, the most common mistake uh, that that people will make, or the most common mis uh, misperception misconception uh, well, that, I, that I, you find. I do feel like that um, people don't understand that there you know that there are you can't just can everything the same way for business? Mm. You know, everything, you know, there's 
yeah. know, things that have um, are naturally high in acids. So we talk about fruits, talk about tomatoes. Okay. High acid things can be water bath can means you don't have to have that pressure can or you don't have to to do that. You can actually water bath them basically steam sealing those jars and okay. because bacteria doesn't grow in high acid environments. However, low acid foods like your green beans and things okay. like that, you're going to have to pressure can those to mm. make sure that you're canning at a higher temperature kills more bacteria and um make sure that things are sealed and and okay um, yeah so again uh that's that's interesting uh that it's not a one-size-fits-all uh kind of right thing. right you, you can can everything can pressure can everything but not everything you can water bath can let's put it that way yeah. <laughs> kind of uh kind of interesting so again uh if you have considered this if you thought about it uh this is where you learn because, again, you don't want to do it wrong. And, of so. course, for people that don't want to can, you can also freeze, dehydrate. There's other those options. So we'll have some information mm-hmm. about that, too. And those are sometimes simple. Very good. have extra freezers. Can and a lot of people uh, doing that. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We so even do that at our New uh, ideas yeah. about how to make things easier, too. Uh, a couple of other <laughs> things uh, that are going on in the uh, month of July to uh, talk about. Uh, you've got uh, Diabetes Support Group. Uh, yes. Actually, uh, a month, um, every month we meet... Um, on, on the third Tuesday of the morning at 50 North okay. um, from 10 to 11. And there is, you know, there is a, a significant population here in the um, in, in Hancock County that do have diabetes. And we've got a wonderful group of adults. They like to share ideas. The topic this month, we're talking about healthy hydration because just Very like all of us, not drinking enough. And yep. for people that are living with diabetes, that can be especially a, um, a high risk thing because those blood sugars go up and yeah. our hydration goes down. Yeah, this time of year. So uh, circle that on your uh, calendar. And you said third uh, Tuesday third of Tuesday every month. Mm-hmm. And then okay. we meet at um, 50 North okay. from 10 to 11. Very good. Uh, also have, uh, I know you're uh, very much involved with the uh, farmer's market uh, and Throughout the month of July, especially, uh, encouraging uh, families to try new things. Yes, yes. Um, very thrilled. Um, getting involved with the farmer's market has been a really, really fun experience. A lot of great leaders there, and they're excited, trying to do some really wonderful things. Um, Blanchard Valley Health System is partnering with the farmer's market to fund a project called the Power of Produce. And so families with kids 4 to 15 can enroll their kids. It's you know, just a simple process, signing up. And those kids, every time they visit the farmer's market, will get $4 worth of tokens to purchase fresh fruits, vegetables, or edible plants, so even herbs. And it's been so fun. The first, the first week we've started this in June, we'll be going through the first week or so of August. And um, again, the farmer's market's every Thursday from four to six at the Marathon Center for Performing Arts mm-hmm. parking lot there. Um, but we have families that come, they'll bring their kids and kids shop. We, we also have some activities going on. Last week we did some infused water. So we talked about, you know, how you can add cucumber, you can add mint, you can add those things to your water to make it taste good. Mm-hmm. And kids would come along, do their shopping and come back and show us what they bought. It's so fun. So not only uh, getting families to eat healthier, but also any parent has who's ever fought the battle of getting your kids to try something new. This is... <laughs> yeah, it's amazing when kids are spending their own little money. They really, they really take it. We have our vendors that are Work at, doing great job working with families to stop That's by awesome. their booths. Yeah, it's great. So something to check out at the farmer's market. And by the way, you mentioned uh, cucumbers. Later in the month, you're doing a cucumber crunch. Yes, That's yes. Late First, in July. Anyone who has a garden, you know, cucumbers are one of those things that are easy to grow, fun to grow, lots of things, cool things you can do with them. So we're going to feature, you know, the um, Ohio Proud, which is the organization that promotes um, farmer's markets and, you know, Ohio-grown produce. 
They have a cucumber crunch. That's kind of the month of July when cucumbers are coming into the season. So we're going to, the third Thursday, which is a big, you know, Thursday for the farmer's market anyways, we're doing a cucumber crunch event. We'll have cucumber samples. We'll have recipes made with cucumbers. Okay. We're also going to have people that can take their selfies and, and post it to Facebook or Instagram saying, you know, they participate in the cucumber crunch. So it ought to be a good time. All right. So uh, things circle on your calendar. More information about all of these happenings, including the uh, food preservation palooza, which is tomorrow. So tomorrow mention that again. Yep. Uh, can be found on uh, online, right? Yes. The website, yeah, the farmers page, market website for the things the farmers market, and our website for stuff happening here in our office. So thanks very much. We've got the link up on our webpage. Uh, Jennifer Little, I appreciate you dropping by. Thank you. And that will conclude our podcast for this morning. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program today. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. That, of course, goodmornings.net. So check us out online coming up tomorrow on the program. Closer look at the decisions that grabbed all the headlines at the end of the Supreme Court's latest term. Do they really mean what some people say they mean? So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.